1: I'm Brian Kilmeade. I'm Kennedy. I'm Sean Duffy, and this is the Fox News Rundown.
2: Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. I'm Dave Anthony. It's primary day in Nevada, but it's no contest for Republicans. Donald Trump's not even on the ballot. Thursday's caucuses will count instead, and Nikki Haley is excluded from those.
0: She promises that she's going to stay in this campaign until Super Tuesday. She thinks somehow there's a path. She made an appearance this weekend on Saturday Night Live. She's doing everything she can to just stay alive. And uh, it just doesn't seem to be translating
3: in the polls. Unleash the Brady. Sports betting is big business. But one recovering addict says problem gambling is an emergency that needs urgent attention.
1: What we're talking about here is regulating a known addictive product. That, by definition, is a public health issue.
4: And I'm Carl Zabo. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown.
2: It's Nevada's turn, the fourth state to hold 2024 contests. And on the Democratic side, President Biden is expected to build on his easy South Carolina primary win, telling voters in Las Vegas Sunday... You're the reason that Donald Trump is a former president. And you're the reason... He'll make Donald Trump a loser again. The president also said this about the former president visiting Biden campaign headquarters in Delaware Saturday. He's not for anything. He's against everything. No, I mean, it's, a, it's the weirdest campaign I've ever been engaged in. It's even worse than, in terms of his behavior than the last time in 2020. Now, former President Trump says that President Biden has destroyed the economy and made the border a mess, telling Fox Sunday Morning Futures.
1: People from jails and prisons, people from mental institutions and insane asylums coming in, uh, it's, uh, our country is being destroyed. But in Nevada
2: today, the Trump name is not even on the Republican primary ballot because the party decided to award its delegates in caucuses set for Thursday. So the former president is only focused on those. Nikki Haley is not.
0: They did give them a choice, and they said if you sign up for one, you can't sign up for the other.
2: Lee Carter is a pollster, president of Maslansky and Partners.
0: And so Nikki Haley chose to go on the primary, which was, you know, a, uh, in, in the end, probably a big mistake on her part because there's going to be no delegates for her.
2: Yeah. And what's also interesting is that voters can choose another option, none of the above. She would intend, potentially be in danger of losing to none of the above, correct?
0: she would be potentially in danger of that. I would find it highly unlikely that that would happen, that people are so drawn to go out to the caucus just to say no one, Uh, but it is possible.
2: That is what Nevada's Governor Lombardo, he he is a supporter of former President Trump, Joe Lombardo. He said that he will vote none of the above.
0: It's a fascinating case study on on the support of Donald Trump and how strong it is. He has the most enthusiastic support of any candidate we've seen in recent times.
2: And on Thursday, when they do caucus and all of the delegates are up for grabs, he's the only one that they'll caucus for, correct?
0: He is the only one. There is a very, very little known candidate that's also on the caucus ballot, but I don't expect to see anything really happening with him.
2: Right. Ryan Binkley, he was also in Iowa, but didn't get much support in Iowa, and the caucus is there. So when we get past the kind of confusing setup of Nevada for the Republicans, we focus on South Carolina, which is for Republicans on February 24th. And Nikki Haley staying in the race. She says, look, only a couple of states voters have voted. So she's in this for a while longer. Does she have enough money to keep going?
0: We have seen some of the big donors pull back, but at this point, the polling suggests that Trump has 64% of the vote and uh, Nikki Haley has just 32%. Clearly, he's got double the vote that she does in her home state. Well, she promises that she's going to stay in this campaign until Super Tuesday. She thinks somehow there's a path. She made an appearance this weekend on Saturday Night Live. She's doing everything she can to just stay alive. And uh, it just doesn't seem to be translating in the polls.
2: There have been several polls in the last few days of just Republicans, NBC, CNN, Yahoo News. And former President Trump gets around 70 percent or more among Republicans and Nikki Haley's in the teens.
0: Now it's fascinating because we saw this pattern um, take shape in New Hampshire. You saw that uh, it was just about seventy percent of, of Republicans went for Donald Trump. Fewer went for Nikki Haley, and Nikki Haley really carried her her portion of the vote with independents and those who are undeclared.
2: Now in South Carolina, you have registered voters. You don't have people who register by party. Saturday. The South Carolina Democratic primary, the first one that Democrats recognize in this cycle, President Biden got like 96 percent of the vote. He won all the delegates. It was an easy victory for him. But voter turnout was really low. Only about four percent of registered voters voted in that primary. Now, anyone who voted last Saturday cannot vote in the Republican primary coming up. So a low turnout could help Nikki Haley, right? I mean, you have Democrats and independents who might actually vote in the Republican primary.
0: Joe Biden made a really big deal about South Carolina going first. I don't think this is good foreshadowing for Joe Biden and voter turnout moving forward. Now, Let's talk about what this means. I think as your question was really about what this means for Nikki Haley in the primary. Well, sure, it certainly does mean that she could have a better chance of overperforming the polls than what we're seeing. Um, But I'm just not sure, based on all the other polling that we've seen, that it's going to translate into her getting close enough. She'd have to double where she is in the polls in order to to win South Carolina. And I just can't see that happening.
2: Nikki Haley used to be the governor in South Carolina, and she campaigned in Charleston yesterday.
0: We're going to close the gap. I'm not going anywhere, then we're going to go on to Michigan, then we're going to go on to Super Tuesday, and we're going to continue to do this because it's the right thing to do.
2: And she said after losing in New Hampshire last month...
0: Trump is the only Republican in the country who Joe Biden can defeat.
2: Haley often cites polls that have shown that she would defeat President Biden in a head-to-head hypothetical contest and by bigger margins than former President Trump. However, other polls show something different. When you factor in independent Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and other third-party candidates, like a Fox News poll last week showed in two battleground states. In Georgia, the Trump lead over Biden in a five-person contest is eight points. But the president would beat Nikki Haley in that same scenario by six. In Wisconsin, the Trump lead over Biden, with Kennedy and the others factored in, is three percentage points. But Nikki Haley would lose to President Biden in that hypothetical in Wisconsin by nine.
0: Donald Trump supporters are Trump supporters through and through for the most part. When you're supporting Nikki Haley... The number one reason I hear people say that they're supporting Nikki Haley as the candidate right now is because it's against Donald Trump. It's rather her than Donald Trump. It's not that they're so excited about what Nikki Haley is going to do. And I think that's why you see, when you introduce the idea of a third party, there's a lot of alternatives that are also votes against Joe Biden, against uh, the status quo. And so that's why I think you see such a, such a shift, especially in some of these key states like Wisconsin, uh, Georgia, and some of the other swing states. So uh, that to me is a big, big... Uh, uh, argument against Nikki Haley uh, for the Republican Party.
2: When you break down within groups of voters, for instance, that Fox poll for Georgia, 51 to 31 is the breakdown. Independence by 20 points support former President Trump over President Biden in Georgia. This is a swing state in which former President Trump faces criminal trial over his 2020 election results conduct. I mean, this is really something.
0: Many people said that the Georgia trial is the one is the most damning for Donald Trump. And yet this state seems to have one of the biggest changes of heart on their view of Donald Trump over the last couple of years. So let's just look at a couple of reasons why. Number one, a lot of people view what's happening to Donald Trump as a witch hunt. They think that it's unfair. The other thing that I think we're seeing is that there are many people who supported Joe Biden who have said his policies haven't worked. They feel worse off today than they did before. And those there are very, very many key audiences for Joe Biden where he has lost support. And those audiences are the black vote, the Latina vote, women, Um, And young people and young people uh, were absolutely critical to Joe Biden winning in 2020. If he loses the support of that, he's going to lose the election.
2: You mentioned black voters in that Fox Georgia poll. Obviously, President Biden has a large number, a majority of black voters, but 23% say they would vote for former President Trump. That's well over double what his support was in, in the prior elections, correct?
5: That is
0: correct. And that is really significant. You look at trends there's a lot of people have said that there's the republican party has not been necessarily the party that represents minorities um, and that we're seeing a shift we're seeing a big shift right now and doubling uh, your polls and just a, in just one cycle i think is a significant and seismic shift and we're seeing that across a couple of key constituents
2: hispanic voters Seemingly more open also to former President Trump, which I think a lot of Democrats can't understand because they claim that he is uh, against immigrants, that he's biased against them, that he's, you know, when he brings up and he says that they're poisoning the blood, that they're trying to portray the former president as bigoted against a a lot of these immigrants. But with overall Hispanic voters, that may not be working.
0: That's right. And I think a lot of folks are scratching their heads on how could this be possible. Well, the truth of the matter is the immigration issue is one that transcends party lines, is one that is all across the country where people are looking at this and saying it is a not just a crisis, it's a humanitarian crisis. Many people have Family members, you know, or know of people who have tried to go through the border crossing. They've ended up victims of human trafficking. They have to spend thousands and tens of thousands of dollars just to get across the border. The money is going to the cartels and they completely disapprove of the process as it is. There's nothing good about the border crossing the way it is today. And I think the Hispanic audience knows that better than anybody else. They're saying, we've got to fix this broken system.
2: I want to ask you about a silver lining that some Democrats see in polling, even though President Biden may be behind in a lot of surveys in a head to head hypothetical rematch with former President Trump. If there's a Trump conviction, he has four criminal trials looming. If there's a Trump conviction, when people are asked if you would vote for him with a conviction, the numbers change, don't they?
0: Hypothetical questions, though, I find to be really, really difficult. It's like asking somebody, are you going to go to the gym on November 5th of next year? You don't really know the answer. Um, the thing that I think is so fascinating about what's happened with Donald Trump is if you ask people uh, you know, two years ago how likely they would be to vote for Donald Trump if he had uh, four indictments and 91 potential criminal charges against him, they would probably say, it's not likely. And yet every time there's another indictment, every time there's another court appearance, every time there's another issue with the legal system that that, that Donald Trump has, his polls increase. So I look at that with some skepticism because there is a fair amount of of support that Donald Trump gets every time one of these things happens. So I think it depends on which case we're talking about and how it's covered and how Donald Trump plays it. And I'm not so sure that even if he is convicted that they're going to lose yeah, then, for him.
2: I mean some of these polls show his his support gets down to like 20%.
0: I think it is something that, um, I think that's one of the reasons why Nikki Haley is still in the race. I think she's counting on something like that happening, and if it does, she's going to be the first one to step in and try to capitalize it. I think Joe Biden's looking at it and saying this absolutely makes sense, and I think a lot of people who are anti-Trump look at it and say, well, finally, there's some sensibility among voters. But I'm not so sure that people are as rational as, as those polls would suggest. I think people are much more emotional about this issue uh, than the polls the well, polls have, are, are letting us think.
2: Well, we have a lot of uh, voting and a lot of those court cases to come still as we have the voters in Nevada going to the polls on Tuesday. Lee Carter, pollster, president of Maslansky and Partners. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Anytime. Thanks for having me.
5: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go to home services Jason in the House,
4: the Jason Chaffetz podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics and entertainment. Subscribe now on
3: foxnewspodcast.com
4: or wherever you download podcasts. This is Carl Zabo with your Fox News commentary coming up.
3: When Super Bowl 58 kicks off this Sunday, millions of people will have money riding on it. In fact, Legal Sports Report, which covers the U.S. sports betting and fantasy sports industries, is projecting a record $1.3 billion will be bet on the game. And that's just legal sports betting, which is now allowed in more than 30 states. The American Gaming Association, for its estimates, factors in billions more in casual bets between friends or as part of pools or box contests. But for some people, sports gambling is a costly problem in more ways than one. We aren't the fun police. We
0: aren't here to tell people how to spend their disposable income. We just want to make sure as gambling becomes
3: easier and more accessible, that there are safeguards in place. Diana Good, executive director of the Connecticut Council on Problem Gambling, says sports betting apps have made gambling much easier and potentially dangerous, like having a casino in your home, not to mention all of the ads and offers. Just sign up for an account and we'll give you a free $50, $350. That's like a free sample. If the dispensaries were saying, come on down to the dispensary and we'll give you a free sample of marijuana, we'd be freaking out. The American Gaming Association argues that a regulated market offers protections for bettors and that the industry is committed to educating consumers about how to bet responsibly. But not every aspect is regulated. And when gambling becomes an addiction, it can lead to tragedy, taking whole families down with it or even suicide. Former lawyer Harry Levant has been to that abyss. I made
1: my first bet when I was 14 years old went to the casino for the first time when I was 16 years old.
3: He's now a certified gambling counselor, public health advocate and primary therapist for Ethos Treatment Center.
1: There are a lot of things I understand about gambling disorder now that I didn't understand at the time. It would take me 30 plus years plus a horrific downfall to really understand through my work in recovery. but. I guess the short answer to the question is that I am a gambling addict in recovery. I made my last bet on April 27th, 2014 and survived a near-suicide attempt that same night. In the grips of my addiction, I lost my mind, my heart, my soul, my conscience. I, I lied and stole from my friends, from my family, from my clients who trusted me. I decimated just about everything in my wake. It got about as ugly as a pathological gambling addiction can get.
3: Wow, and you were ultimately disbarred as a lawyer, is that right? Disbarred and more. After making my last bet,
1: I uh, went to the authorities, turned myself in. I had been taking money from client accounts that didn't belong to me. And in uh, February of 2015, pled guilty to 13 financial felonies and one misdemeanor. Uh, was sentenced to 11 and a half to 23 months in jail. And on the day of my sentencing, the judge granted me immediate parole in the courtroom with the instruction that I should continue to work on my recovery and a further instruction that this didn't have to be the end, that maybe down the road I could do something with my journey to help other people. And in the uh, presence of the people I had stolen from, my victims, presence of my children, and in front of a court, I had practiced law and as a lawyer for more than two decades, I made a solemn promise that if there was anything I'd be able to do when I got well enough to help others and maybe try and prevent other people from suffering the same fate, I would do that. And that's part of what I dedicate my career to today.
3: Was that failed suicide attempt, the, the wake-up call, if you will, the shock to your system that you needed to be able to say that was my last bet. I mean, it took something that drastic.
1: First of all, to anyone who hears this, uh, if anyone is, is contemplating self-harm, know that help is available. We need to mention the 988 suicide prevention system that can be dialed or texted at any time. Um, I don't know that it's quite that simple. Um, when one is stuck in the grips of a pathological addiction, the way mine was, it is It's a series of things, Um, but I will point to the fact that while I was attempting to take my life, I was sitting at a desk in a, a gorgeous hotel room in Atlantic City, New Jersey, trying to write a note to my children to sort of explain that which could never be explained. And many of us in recovery talk about having this moment of clarity, not everyone has it, but I certainly did. While I was trying to write that note, I realized I didn't want to die. My addiction wanted me to die. It was done with me. It had taken my heart and my mind and my soul and my conscience. It would live on. I'd be gone. And there was something about that recognition and trying to write the note to my kids that made me pick up the phone and call some friends for help.
3: Did these experiences, these life-altering changes that you went through show you deficiencies in the way this problem has been handled and what would be better ways to help
1: the night that i made my last bet i called 1-800-GAMBLER and as unwell as i was and i was about as impaired as a person can be and still be standing up i'll never forget what they told me they told me that night on april 27 2014 we can pay for about five sessions for you to meet with a gambling counselor. But that's all we really do. What we do is we work with the gambling industry to help them spot people who might have a problem. And at that moment, as unwell as I was, I put in the back of my mind, something's very wrong here. The people who are supposed to be advocating for folks who are struggling are working hand in hand with the industry. It didn't make sense to me. It would be a number of years before I really dove headfirst into this. I went to rehab, had to deal with my legal issues, worked in treatment with an addiction psychologist for better part of four years because with all with most addictions, the 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 gambling is the symptom. The problems lie much deeper. And I, I worked on those things, but ultimately I found myself very privileged to be accepted to LaSalle University in Philadelphia for a master's in their professional clinical counseling program. And when I started studying for a master's in counseling to become an addiction therapist, I started to really research the what's called the responsible gaming system, which is the gambling industry's approach to this.
3: Have there been changes between what you discovered then and a decade later, what's happening now?
1: It's unfortunately, very few. If anything, uh, what we see now with the explosive growth of online sports betting, and in many states, online casino gambling, the states and the gambling industry continue to push this, well, just be responsible narrative, putting the onus back on the individual and directing attention away from the addictive nature of the online gambling products. And science has known since 2013 that gambling is a full-fledged addiction, just like Heroin and opioids and tobacco and cocaine and alcohol. So this idea of putting the onus on the end user and not looking at how the product is distributed is inherently dangerous. It's a risk to public health.
3: What are some practical changes then that you would like to see happen in terms of helping people if it is taken from a public health standpoint instead?
1: The best form of treatment for any addiction is prevention. What I want to do, and as you know, I work as a, a gambling addiction therapist. I like to put myself out of business. I like to prevent the harm before it occurs. So the 1-800-GAMBLER system, people pick up the phone after they have already suffered significant harm to themselves and them fa- and their families. What we want to do in the public health community is look at the product, and there are a few things that can be done right off the top that would bring immediate relief. The first is affordability checks. I have a number of patients who are college students who have no jobs, they're students, and they are losing tens of thousands of dollars. The idea that gambling companies can take action from people without knowing whether people can afford to lose what they are wagering seems to make no sense to me. Um, The next is we need to look at the nature of the products themselves, particularly what's called micro betting or in-game betting. This is no longer the era where you bet on the winner and loser of each event. Gambling companies are using artificial intelligence and state-of-the-art technology to deliver instantaneous action on every event within a game. The The next play in a football game, the next pitch, in a baseball game, every swing of a golf club. For a person who is struggling, it's not about the sport, it's about the action. Gambling disorder is about the way the product makes people feel. And what the gambling companies are delivering with this micro betting is a non-stop course of instantaneous access to action. The sport doesn't matter, it's the access to the action. People are betting on table tennis from Russia. People are betting on basketball from China. People are betting on cricket from the United Kingdom. It, For the person who's struggling, it's the action. And that's what we have to regulate, the access to the action.
3: Do you envision some pushback, though, in terms of free speech or individual rights when you're talking about somehow incorporating, you know, income-related limits or telling people, you know, no, here's a wall. You can't, you can only have this many micro bets or you can't have any micro bets. You know, you see what I'm getting at?
1: You, you, You raise the issue of the First Amendment let's be clear what we're talking about here is regulating a known addictive product that by definition is a public health issue it's no different than regulating access to pharmaceuticals or opioids with gambling one of the most serious things that has taken place and the biggest risks to public health is that the industry and its partners both in the media and in sports and frankly in state government have normalized this product And children are being exposed every single day, every time they turn on a television or open a computer. You can't watch a sporting event any longer without being bombarded with not only gambling advertising, but gambling talk and actual talk of how to make bets.
3: So you're hoping, it sounds like, that the government will step in? Or are you hoping that enough pressure for government intervention will perhaps encourage the apps to change their behavior?
1: These aren't behavior of apps. These are behavior of companies that, look, have a responsibility to try and make as much money as they can for their shareholders and others. However, all of that, what they call revenue, is actually losses by you and others the public. Revenue means money lost by the public. So while I would welcome any conversation with any gambling industry executive at any place at any time, I'm not optimistic that they will self-regulate. I think this is going to be a combination of Congress having to be involved on a national level because the industry is up close to $100 billion in losses by the public a year. I think it's going to have to be the role of the courts where citizens bring lawsuits seeking to establish an actual duty of care on the part of the industry. Something's going to have to be done. So it's all of those things and more that I'm working towards.
3: Harry Levant, Gambling Counselor, Public Health Advocate, thank you very much for your time.
1: It's been my pleasure.
2: Fox News Podcasts
3: Network.
0: I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.
2: Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Carl Zabo.
4: What's on your mind? New York City Mayor Eric Adams just classified social media as an environmental threat. It's an effort by Adams to deflect from his own legal issues and policy missteps. The mayor's social media advisory cites alarming statistics between 2011 and 2021, such as a 42% increase in hopelessness amongst New York City high schoolers. However, these figures not only fail to directly correlate to social media use, but it's clear Adams isn't following the science. In reality, the root causes of this despair seem to lie in the city's own backyard. A failing school system, rampant crime, increasing homelessness, and overall mismanagement. Notably, a staggering one out of nine city students are in shelters, indicating deep-seated issues beyond the scope of social media. The phrase environmental toxin used by Adams is a misnomer. Unlike genuine environmental toxins, research shows that social media is not inherently harmful. In fact, organizations like the American Psychological Association acknowledge social media's mental health benefits. Social media, much like television, can be beneficial within certain parameters, and it is the primary role of parents or guardians to set those boundaries for their children, not the government or Adams. Buried at the end of the advisory is the real goal. Calls for unconstitutional restrictions on social media that will limit our access and expand government control over free speech. We can expect New York's government to begin deciding what content is and is not safe to read and say. It's crucial to recognize that this isn't a mere overreach. It's a direct threat to the fundamental freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment. The founders of our nation understood the importance of free speech and a free press as cornerstones of democratic society, but actions like this undermine these principles and pave the way for authoritarian like censorship. The unfortunate irony is that while Adams aims to protect youth from supposed harms of social media, he is simultaneously depriving them of the critical ability to engage with diverse viewpoints a skill essential in a thriving democracy. The solution to digital concerns is not more regulation, but empowering individuals and parents through efforts like Net Choice's SHIELD program to secure, hold, invest, empower, launch, and develop. SHIELD advocates for personal responsibility and freedom, emphasizing the right of Americans to choose what they view, read, and believe. SHIELD also emphasizes that the government must do its job and give law enforcement the resources to put child abusers behind bars. While Adams throws stones at social media platforms, he ignores the fact that these businesses report millions of instances of child abuse to the government. But law enforcement only has the capacity to investigate a mere 1% of those reports. That means 99% of reports of child abuse are being unanswered. The mayor should not shift the conversation from his administration's failures. He must try and fix them. It's time for New York City's government to address the real issues facing the Big Apple, such as crime educational shortcomings, and homelessness. That is how Adams can uplift and
2: improve the environment for New Yorkers. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.